As we begin this new study in Thessalonians, I'm excited for us to look at this short book of five chapters, and then 2 Thessalonians is three chapters. We could spend a lot of time bogged down in the soft dirt. There's a lot of exciting things for us. Today, I want to just kind of do a general overview so that as we think about the book, we could say, I know what that's about. I understand what he is trying to teach in this letter. Now, the key thought of the Thessalonian epistles is that since Jesus is coming, we should be prepared. We should be ready. So think about that. Since Jesus is coming, it ought to impact the way that we live. Now, Paul's talking to the Thessalonians. Now, this book was written at about 50. Paul Paul got to Thessalonica in about 49, late 49, early 50. He wrote this about two months after he left Thessalonica. So maybe it was written in 50, 51. It's one of the first books. It was the first one that Paul, well, Galatians may be a little before that. So it's one of the early books. But Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, Jesus is coming, you better be ready. Now, let that settle in for just a moment. What signs were they looking for? Was there really things that had to take place before this event that Paul was telling them about had to take place. You know, we're hearing a lot about this today in the world because of COVID-19, because of the all the, the really cool numbers that are coming up on patents and really cool things that it's really all in code, that because of that, we know Jesus is coming. Now, we're, we'll talk about that over the next couple weeks just very quickly, but I would like to encourage you with this, and that is this. Some have been saying, well, beware if you, if you take um, the, uh, not the antidote, but if, if the vaccine, then obviously what they're going to do, you're going to end up taking the mark of the beast. Let me just tell you something. You can't take the mark of the beast unintentionally. You're not going to get suckered into something, oh no, I just took the mark of the beast, now I'm doomed for all eternity. It can't happen that way because God says it can't happen that way. There have been a few men that are out there that are preaching sensational things that are really sensational, but they're not scripture. Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, be ready, Jesus is coming. Now, was Paul really deceiving them? Was Paul saying, be ready, When you live 2,000 years, then Jesus is coming. So we're going to look and see. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul mentions Jesus is coming. Hmm. I want you to know this. I don't want you to be uninformed. It's important that you be wise. Here's the biggest concern. I'm concerned that it will create fear in your lives. You shouldn't have that fear. God didn't give us that spirit of fearing what other people are doing and saying. But here's the other thing. Every time we come up with some really unique, uh, there are other descriptions that I that come to my mind, but I'm going to say really unique ideas about Christ's coming, and it's not what Scripture says. The world hears what we say, and they wait it out, and the world says, you Christians have no idea what you're talking about. 
and we damage our testimony before the unsaved because they say, it didn't happen. Now, all of a sudden, could Jesus come? Absolutely. It has nothing to do with COVID-19. Just remember that. And we're going to study the scriptures, and you will see for yourself from the scriptures that they were not waiting for COVID-19 or for something else like that. They were waiting for Jesus to return. There was nothing they were waiting on for Jesus to return. That's why we talk about the imminency of the return of Christ. Either what took place back in Thessalonica was not legitimate and Paul didn't know what he was talking about or he did know what he was talking about and some of the things we're hearing today, they don't know what they're talking about. Important to remember, don't confuse the second coming of Jesus Christ and the rapture of the church. Two different events, that's going to be important. All right, that was a sidelight. But I just wanted to mention to you, you know, I'm uncomfortable with what I'm hearing some of these men preaching right now, and I'm telling you because you're the ones I'm responsible before the Lord to make sure you know God's Word. And if you attach Christ's coming to an event, you set yourself up to lose credibility. Well, let's look at this Thessalonian church and see what we can learn about our Lord's return and how it should be impacting the way we live today. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you. We are grateful for the opportunity to study your word, and I ask that you would help us to understand. I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds, that your word would be the lamp and the light so that we would know how to live. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The story of how the gospel comes to an area is always interesting. I've been trying to figure out, when did the gospel come to Fargo first? The best I can tell from North Dakota is that the gospel came to North Dakota um, right after North Dakota became a territory in 1861. I couldn't tell anything previous to that, what missionaries might have come through, but in the 1870s, a whole raft of churches began being placed here. The Lutherans, the Methodists, the Baptists, they were all within about two years of each other coming to this area. Now, Paul's visit to Thessalonica was in about 49 AD. Now, let's just kind of put this in perspective as for when our Lord was here on the earth. Um, our graduate, how old are you? 18. You're 18, okay. About 16... And we can even push it so that we can focus on understanding Daniel. He's 18. About 18 years. About his lifespan is how long it had been since Jesus died until Paul was writing to the Thessalonians about the life of our Lord. So, I mean, you look at him and you think about the lifespan of an older teenager and maybe the first year or so of that time span, Jesus would have still been teaching here on earth. This wasn't a very long time span. We look at something, we'd say 2,000 years. It's been a very long time. But Paul was writing to these people within about 16 or 18 years of when all the events had taken place. The town of Thessalonica is a very old city. It was originally named Therma. 
for the many hot springs that were in the area. Its name changed in about 300 B.C. uh, after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. Now, if you can visualize, and it's... I'm not great with maps. I genuinely have to always be looking at them. And so maybe you might want to look at the back of your Bible, look at the maps for just a moment. But if, if you imagine with me, you've got Turkey is right here, you have Israel right here, and you've got Egypt, Libya down here, and the big body of water is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so, so Egypt, Israel, Turkey. If you go to the far edge, the far eastern edge of Turkey you would find, far western edge of Turkey, you would find Ephesus. From Ephesus, and then go up straight north, still in Turkey, of Ephesus, you have Troas, and it was there in Troas that Paul got the Macedonian vision. God said, you can't go this direction, I want you to go that direction. And so, as he, were, as he was going to go around, he, the Bible tells us he went from Troas to Neapolis. Now, that would be across, I think it's the Adriatic Sea at that. It's the Aegean Sea, thank you. It's the Aegean Sea, and that's about a 125-mile journey. So think about some of you that are getting your boats ready, and you think about getting in a boat and going 125 miles. That's a long boat ride. And Paul got there, and he went from Neapolis And from Neapolis is when he went to Philippi. Now, we've just finished studying Philippians. Philippi was a major city, but remember, in Philippi is when Paul was, was making waves because he was telling them the gospel changes people, and specifically the trigger point was the girl that was demon-possessed, and she had been um, marketed as someone that could tell the future, and when Paul cast the demon out of her, All the businessmen were angry. They beat Paul. They put him in prison, Paul and Silas. I don't know where Luke and Timothy were at that point. They obviously didn't get collected into that because the Bible doesn't say that they were put in prison. You go from, so Paul, our text today began by saying, Paul left Philippi and was now going to go south. It was about 75 miles as the crow flies, about a 100-mile journey that Paul was going to go from there to Thessalonica. Now, let these, let these numbers kind of stick in your head when you start thinking about how far these distances are. If you had just been beaten and your body was scabbed over and you had been in stocks and then you make a hundred mile journey, not in your Mercedes, not in your Lexus, not in your, probably not even on a donkey, but walking. You think how stiff we get sometimes just sitting in church on padded chairs and you think what it would have been like for him. So as, as he went... It appears um, that as they, they made this journey, they arrived, and it was about a five-day walk for them. So Paul passed by Amphipolis and Apollonia, which were just down the coast, and he went to the major city of Thessalonica, and he went there because it was the major hub. It probably also had a synagogue. 
The scripture tells us that. The other two cities maybe didn't, and that's the reason why he skipped over those. All right, with all that in mind, I've given you a lot of history, mainly because I want you to begin entering into, when he's talking to the Thessalonians, he writes this book, he's there in Thessalonica, and he's there for a short amount of time, and what happens? Pressure comes. The mobs begin to grow, and they take Jason, and they beat Jason. Let me go back to the Acts passage. And the Jews were, were filled with envy, and there in Thessalonica, they took some leading people who were Christians, and they, they took them before the magistrates because they couldn't find Paul and they couldn't find Silas. And they took them before them, and they, they threatened Jason, and in fact, um, they took a, some kind of a guarantee financially. And so Paul leaves for Jason's sake, for those Christians' sake, but also for his own life. The Bible doesn't say that Paul left motivated to protect his own life. The Bible says he left for their sake. Now, it was a sudden leaving. He had to leave quickly, and rumors began building in Thessalonica of people going, Paul doesn't really love you. In fact, Paul, while he was there, twice gifts came from Philippi to help Paul with his expenses. Paul was in tent-making, Paul didn't take money from the Thessalonians. And all that is important because you're going to find the book of Thessalonians is really written a personal side and then there is a practical side. The personal side covers chapters 1 through 3 and in those first three chapters, Paul's going to defend why he left Thessalonica so quickly. The arguments were Paul was in it only for the money. Paul was manipulating people. Paul is a con man. And you start going through often things that a, a missionary is going to be accused of. And so Paul, as he writes back to them, he says, look, I wanted to come back to you. I've tried to come back to you. I've been hindered in coming back to you. Why was it important that Paul defend his apostolic authority? Why was it important Paul defend his character? Because you see, character in an individual is what causes people to either believe or not believe what they say. Some point as we study 1 Timothy together, you're going to find what does it focus on. It doesn't focus on a job description for a pastor. What does it focus on? Character. It's all about character. Because what a person is impacts what a person, what they think about that individual. Now what I find it's fascinating is you notice God's plan has always been the same, and I just want to mention this so that we're thinking that. God's plan has always used people to get the gospel message out to others. He could have used angels, but he didn't. And he doesn't. God uses people. That's why God used Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. And God's plan is still the same for us today. I guess the question I just would pause for just a moment to ask you is this. Who do you know that doesn't know? Who do you know that doesn't know the gospel? Who do you know that has not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior? God uses us. I can't reach everybody. 
but I can be a witness to those God puts me in contact with. In the same way with you. So Paul's ministry with the Thessalonians focused on one key point. Jesus is coming again. You need to be ready. Let's just look at a couple verses here. And we'll, as we look at them, you'll begin to see how Paul just always is talking about waiting for Jesus. Jesus is coming. So he mentions it in every chapter. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, notice he says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned from God, how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, which delivered us from the wrath to come. That that's an important phrase there. It tells us something. Jesus Christ's death delivered us from God's wrath, which is to come. The first thing he tells us in being ready is you need to be saved. We hear people talk about Jesus Christ. I often hear Jesus Christ's name used, but it's usually just kind of as filler words. They're thinking, of, they're, they're surprised or they're upset, or whatever, and they use Jesus Christ's name. But the truth is, Jesus Christ did come to this earth. And he came to be the Savior of the world. The second thing that we're going to find is in chapter 2. And I want you to notice verses 19 and 20. And that is, Paul is telling us, not only should we be saved, but we should be sharing with others that they too can be saved. Look at verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For what is our joy, our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And what's Paul saying? Let me tell you what's really important in life. He says there's really little matters, there's really little that matters in the final outcome except people. People are what matter. It's not the stuff. You're going to leave the stuff. When you get to heaven, you'll have all the stuff you need. You can't take your stuff from here to there because what you've got here is not valuable. When you get there, you'll find what's really valuable. And what is it that is most valuable? It's people. Look in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. And there we read, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love toward one another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Notice how he was saying, we live a certain way because we want to be living a certain way when he comes. What is he telling us? He says, be a good student of God wants you to be. Be studious. Be a good student of what God wants you to be. Why? Because that's going to be important. And then look at verses, uh, chapter 4. He says, understand this. Be strong. Your labor is not in vain. If you die before Jesus Christ comes back, the question, what about those who have died already before Jesus Christ came? Did they miss out? Did they lose out? And that's when he gives the explanation where he says, no, 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 you need to understand something. 
We will meet the Lord in the air. The people that have died will go first. The word prevent there does not mean to stop them. It means to go before them. Those who are alive will not prevent those who have already died, but they will be raptured and we will be raptured and we will meet the Lord in the air. And from that point on, we'll always be with them. From that point on, that's still not the beginning of the end. I mean, we could say it's the beginning of the end, but in reality, what starts those last seven years is going to be a peace treaty that's signed with Israel. And we will be taken out of that because he's already said he's not appointed us to wrath. So he says, be strong under pressure. With the gospel comes opposition. In chapter 1, verse 6, he was beaten. In, in Thessalonica, they knew the pressure because not only did Paul get pressure, but now every Christian that was associated with Paul, that was associated with the gospel, had pressure. He said, understand that, be strong under pressure. In chapter 2, verse 2, Philippi was the place of opposition. Remember, Paul was beaten and left there to go to Thessalonica. In chapter 2, verse 14, Christ and suffering go together. And then the last thing he says to them, he says, look, it's so important that you remember to be holy, to be set apart. The word that we use often is sanctified, but it's not a term that we use in our daily life, in our, in our daily language very often. Knowing that Jesus is coming back, don't be afraid to live uniquely by what the Scripture says rather than by what the world says. You see, Jesus is coming back, and he says that should dominate our thinking. That should dominate the way that we live. Now, the problem with date setting, the problem with now saying, well, now Jesus might be coming back as compared to earlier, is if there's a date circled on the calendar and you go, all right, that's not till the end of the summer, what do we tend to do? We reprioritize and we go, okay, I'm going to do these other things. I'm not going to live in view that Jesus is coming, because Jesus isn't coming. All these things have to take place, and the reality is nothing has to take place for Jesus to come back and get us. There are no events that have to take place for the rapture, only for the second coming, and we're going to be gone before those things take place. We don't live looking for earthquakes and pestilence and diseases. We live looking for our Lord Jesus Christ. And that changes now the way that we live. It changes the way that we think. So Paul says, Jesus is coming. It should dominate our thinking. And then the second point Paul wants to get across in the whole book of Thessalonians is this. Paul wants to get across that God is holy and therefore we should be holy. Our Christian walk ought to be in a way that reflects Jesus Christ. So Paul's ultimate thought was, what does God think? Look with me in chapter 2. Notice what he says here. He says, beginning at verse 1, For yourselves, brethren, know that our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain, but even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Notice those last phrases that are there. He says, look, I was not concerned about what other people thought. Because it's God who sees and it's God who tries 
our hearts. You see, Paul's ultimate thought was, what does God think? Paul wanted to make sure that how he served was in line with what God said. You know, the exciting thing about the scriptures is this. We don't have to always wonder every day, boy, am I doing it right? Is God really going to be happy with me? Will I get rewarded for the things that I do? Because you see, unlike human tests where they keep moving the ball on you, they keep moving the end goal on you and going, oh, now try this. You did really well with that. Now do this. God tells us in his word, this is, this is the way to live. And God says, this is the way you'll be rewarded. You already have all the answers to the test. All you need to do is do what he says. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. The light never changes. The path never changes. The problem is, can we see the path or not? And that's through God's word. You see, there was always a pressure to please men that constantly affected them, and it affects us today. Sadly, even in churches, what do we do? We come and we kind of look at each other and we're saying, hmm, I wonder what so-and-so thinks about me today. We were laughing at breakfast today about when I was in third grade, I went to, uh, it was like a street fair kind of thing with my school, and I bought something that I'll bet every one of you would really like to have, and that was I bought a nose warmer. Now, I don't see them a whole lot around here. It was knitted, had a ball on the end, and you wore it with an elastic band around your head. You know, had I, they still can't believe, they can't believe I'm talking about it, nor less that I did it. And they asked me this morning, they said, so what did everyone else think? I said, oh, we were all in. All of us bought it. We were all doing it. But imagine now this morning, if instead of saying we're going to wear masks, I said we're all going to wear nose warmers. Well, some peer pressure begins to enter in. We are always peer conscious. We're always curious what people think about us. Paul says, please make sure. Focus on what God thinks. Paul said he was interested in pleasing God alone. Second of all, notice at verse 12 of chapter 2, Paul challenged them to walk in a way that was pleasing to God. He says that ye should walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory. You see, they were just supposed to live a life that was consistent with what they claimed to be. Now, moral impurity was rampant. Years ago, there was an, an understanding and an expectation in our society about purity. In reality, today, that's not what's going on. It has to be taught. And they have to understand why we should keep ourselves pure. See, it was a huge temptation then, just as it was, just as it is today. So in chapter 4, when we get into the practical side of his teaching, Paul's going to say, so here's how you live. And then at the end of the chapter, he says, arrange your lifestyle so that you're ready for Christ's return. You know, as we begin this brief study in Thessalonians, we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? That's the question I have to ask myself and you have to ask yourself today. Am I ready? First, am I saved? And you start going through that list. You know, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't put that off. 
You say, well, I'm not good enough yet. I'm not this, I'm not that. Just understand something. You'll never be good enough. That's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross. It's all about Jesus. It's not about how good you are. I once saw a NASCAR commercial. I was just thinking about the fact that NASCAR is just coming back. I don't even know if they are. I don't think they're allowing people to actually go to the tracks yet, but they're, but they're trying to get NASCAR running again. And a number of years ago, I saw the commercial of a dad and his son who were excited to go to a race. They were just leaving their hotel room. They had these badges that was going to allow them to get in and see their favorite driver. So they were all excited. So the dad is hurrying the boy from the hotel to meet the driver. While the dad is rushing the boy out of the hotel, the little boy's eyes get huge because coming out of one of the hotel rooms was his favorite driver. Now the dad was going, hurry, hurry, we got to go see our favorite driver. And the little boy's going, my driver's right here. You see, the driver was not, the dad was not expecting to see the driver so soon. He thought it would be in his timing rather than at the driver's timing. Today, we're not in charge of when Jesus is coming. Paul's challenge was to the Thessalonians who were just 16 to 18 years after our Lord's walking here on earth, he says, be ready. That makes us think, oh, if they should be ready, then I guess I should be ready. Obviously, we're closer to when Christ is coming than those people, but those people were living, assuming that, and Paul was saying, those of you who are alive and remain, you will be caught up together with those that have already died. The assumption was... Jesus could come at any moment. Are you ready? Second thing I'd like to just encourage you with is God uses people. We can't force people to get saved. We can't make people get saved. But we can share what God has done for us. We can share the truth about God because they don't know what God is like. They're thinking God is mean and cruel. They're thinking God is unfair. And all of those things apply to Satan, but they don't apply to God. The gospel, still had, the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16 tells us that. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 repeats that. Satan still opposes the gospel and God's people. As we get into this study of Thessalonians and we start drilling down, I wanted just to kind of fly over the book for you this morning and get in your mind if someone said, well, what's Thessalonians all about? It's Jesus is coming, so I guess we ought to be ready. Jesus is coming, so let's get ready. But what does get ready mean? And you're going to find out in Paul's day, some people had totally stopped working and they were just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come. Hmm, did they think Jesus was coming in their lifetime? Obviously they did. And Paul says, no, that's not what be ready means. And we'll study those things together. I'm excited for this time. I hope you can be excited. But I also want you to know this doctrine of the Lord's return is really important for us because it impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we worship. It impacts the way we talk with other people. It impacts our values. So I trust today 
you are ready, and you are thinking, I want to stay ready. <laughs>